morning. Glad everyone here is here with me this morning. And uh, uh, if you're watching or listening online, you won't get this, but I think it's always amazing how God makes things happen that with Keno's uh, communion message this morning, it ties right into our sermon. So it should be lots of fun. So we'll get started. Um, I know we're all in here a little bit older, some older than others, but can you remember back to those days in high school or college when you're kind of going through that dating scene and then suddenly there was like the breakup, right? And, and there was always this thing in the breakup where, where at least I went through this, it wasn't me, but I went through this where the girl was like, oh, no, no, John, it, it's not you, it's, it's me, it's me. Do you remember those days? Did you ever have any of those, you know, and had that conversation? Well, I had a flashback this morning. It has nothing to do with the sermon, by the way. But I had a flashback this morning. We're in the car, we were driving down, and Tara says, John, I didn't get much sleep last night, so I might fall asleep in your sermon. But, you know, it's not you. It's me. So, you know, I'll just see. We'll see if she sleeps or not. But we are, sorry, Tara. We are in your study, in our study, uh, continuing with the apostles this morning. We are going to be in Luke chapter 6 once again for that short introduction to Jesus' calling of the apostles. And then we will be jumping into John chapter 11. If you want to follow along with me, I'll be reading out of the New American Standard Translation. But we're looking at the apostles continuing on to see that these 12 men under the mentorship of Jesus grew from common ordinary men to uncommon evangelist that God took the raw materials of these men and under his leadership under his mentorship for two years and through the guidance of the Holy Spirit radically changed these men to become some of the greatest evangelists of all time and I would dare to say maybe even bigger than Billy Graham now they didn't have well they did kind of have the Crusades they had the feeding of the 4,000 the feeding of the 5,000 which was 20 to 30,000 people in reality because they only counted the men. So they did have some big things, but these men, except for Judas, were empowered by God to go from who they were in ordinary individuals to men who gave their lives, their abilities, and their willingness to submit to God and the correction of Jesus to become something greater than they could ever have dreamed. I mean, Again, maybe this is my life, I don't know about you, but I remember being back in high school and that, and you know, you see the Superman movies and the Batman movies or whatever you're watching, I don't know. And you know, you're thinking, oh, to, I, I, I could be this great individual. But put yourself in the apostle's sandals and think if they were kind of going through that, because we know they kind of had some pride issues with Jesus, right? He had to correct him a number of times. And you know, they're fighting over who's gonna be first and second in the kingdom of heaven next to Jesus. And Jesus like, hey, Boys, that's not up to me, but, uh, you know, let's talk about this a little bit more. They had some of these visions of grandeur, of wanting to be this. But can you imagine when the reality of what Jesus was doing through them would impact them, that if Jesus would kind of pull them aside one day and say, hey, don't worry about the kingdom of heaven, we'll get there. But do you realize that some 2,000 years from now, people will be reading your Gospels and still talking about your impact and how you have become the foundation of the church? It's kind of a crazy thought, isn't it? It gives me hope in the fact that as we've been going through the apostles, and I hope it's, it's blessing you also in the practical application, that as we come and we look at these men, and we compare some of their traits to our lives, to realize that God can do some tremendous great thing in us as well. And it may not be preaching to 10 or 20,000, it may not be doing something like that, but it may be simply sharing the gospel with one individual and having the honor to lead them to salvation in Jesus Christ. I mean, that literally changes the life of an individual, doesn't it? It doesn't have to be big in the sense that we see, but big in the kingdom of God and following in his will. Maybe it's like Ellen used to do with the Sunday school kids and just be there every Sunday to teach them about God and change their life for the future. That the Word of God comes back and says, train up a child and how he should go, and years later he will return to that. You know, I think that impact that Ellen has had on our children and many other children that have come through Wasatch Christian Church, that presenting them with that gospel and love that maybe they didn't catch it then, but the seed was planted. And who knows what happens years down the road. So as we study these men this morning and continue in our study, I hope that you're blessed. 
But beyond being blessed, I hope that you're encouraged and you're challenged in the fact that you are a project in the hands of God today, just like the apostles. And God wants to mold you and change you and transform you to be someone beyond what you ever thought you could be in the life of another individual with the gospel of Jesus. So I hope that you're blessed in this, and I, I pray that God is speaking to you, challenging you, encouraging you, healing you, whatever it may be. This morning we uh, have looked at a number of the apostles. We've already looked at Peter. We've looked at Andrew, James and John, Nathaniel, and Matthew. And today we are going to look at Thomas. Now, many of you already know Thomas to some extent, right? Because what adjective always comes before Thomas's name? Doubting. Doubting Thomas. So you know the guy a little bit, right? Well, that's a springboard we'll base off of. So we'll look at this and see why God would call a doubting man to be an apostle. So let's look at Luke first, Luke 6, 12 to 16. That introduction, once again, of Jesus calling the apostles out of the group of disciples that were following him. To make them into the evangelists. Luke 16, starting, or Luke 6, starting with verse 12. It was at that time that Jesus went off to the mountain to pray. And he spent the whole night there in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him, and he chose twelve of them, whom he also named as apostles: Simon, who was also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, James and John and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot who became a traitor. All right, Thomas. Now just like we talked about before that, that reading of scripture, when you think of Thomas, what do you think of? Doubting Thomas. I mean, this man, <laughs> has got the rough end of history, hasn't he? Because yes, he's an apostle, but when we hear his name and we think of him, we think of, well, doubting Thomas, he didn't believe Jesus. Well, that's a good challenge because there are those times in our lives where we lack the faith to believe in God's word and what he's telling us to do, right? You ever have those moments where, you know, you're kind of in a quandary and you're, you're a little nervous, you're a little anxious, trying to figure out what you should be doing, but you shouldn't be nervous and anxious anyway because the Bible says don't do it. There's the first kicker right there. But then, you know, it's like, well, God says this, but I, I just think, I just think if I did it this way, it'd come out so much better. And how's that work for you, typically? Usually not very good, right? And that's the stigma that's that's been given to Thomas. We call people doubting Thomases, and this poor guy has got the raw end of the stick in this deal over the last 2,000 years, hasn't he? So hopefully I... I hope to share with you this morning that Thomas was more than that, more than just a doubter, but let's just deal with the elephant in the room, the elephant in Luke 6 through chapter 6, 12 through 16 about Thomas. Thomas was a negative person, wasn't he? When we read about Thomas, you know, he doubts, he does all this stuff. He was a negative person in a sense. You know, Thomas was the guy that, like Thomas Hardy said, he could always find the manure in every field right? Or some of you may know Murphy's Law. Remember Murphy's Law? If anything can go wrong, what? It will. I mean, that was kind of the guy Thomas was as a general nature. He was that negative person. And I don't know about you, but negative people to me are just a pain, right? I mean, don't you just seek to be with a group of super negative people? Isn't that what you want for, you know? I mean, yeah, there's the, the crowd in high school or college, and there's the cheerleaders and the happy people and the athletes, and they're all doing this stuff. But you want to go with the people over in that dark corner that are just Eeyores and woe is me, and this dark cloud just tends to hang over them. That's where you want to go, right? Tara's looked at me like, John, I haven't fallen asleep yet. I'm staying awake just for you. But that is not the kind of people I want to hang out with. Why do we not want to hang out with negative people? brings you down, you know, and then we come to that song going, don't bring me down, down, down. Got to date some of you, by the way. Some of you may listen to me and never even heard of that song, but it's in there, look it up. They bring us down. I mean, you ever have an experience where you're just like on cloud nine, something good's happening, life is going good, and you come in and you're like, oh man, you come in the room with a bunch of people like, this is awesome, God is great, and someone goes, yeah, I'm having a bad day. 
and you just feel the energy just what leaving the body sucked right out of you right they just they bring you down we don't like to be around negative people we have names for them like doubting thomas negative nancy debbie downer right and we don't want to be that people but sometimes <laughs> we are aren't we we can really relate to thomas on this negative side of things more than we can positive sometimes. I mean, the Bible says, consider it all what? Joy in how many things? All things. Well, we do that one. We've got that one down, don't we? I mean, when that black cloud of life comes over you and it starts dumping, pouring, downfalling, negative rain upon your life, you're just like, God, this is so wonderful. I needed a shower today, right? No, we're like, oh. I mean, I'm as guilty as this. Sometimes we walk in and we just talk about what is wrong with the world, all the things that are wrong with the world. You know, you ever notice that in our speech? We're always talking about the negative things. Well, this is bad. Now, you see the news about this, and well, there's China and what's going on there, and there's Russia, and, you know, and the, my boss laid this on me. And, you know, I mean, I, I this is kind of a weird picture, but I, I have a picture of about. Uh, uh, a week or two ago when Austin and Emily were over at our house and they had their brand new baby Ellie and Emily goes in to change her little one month old baby and all of a sudden we hear this little shriek and she's like oh my gosh oh my gosh she goes somebody grab a pad grab a blanket she's had a blowout it's like there's stuff everywhere right I mean we literally took this little baby well I took her after she was partially clean because I can't do that stuff real well and we're holding her in the shower <laughs> like this and someone else has got the little spray hose and they're spraying her off because there's stuff on her that's negative and then Emily's trying to deal with the stuff in the other room that's everywhere and when we're down and around negative people that's kind of really what life is like isn't it it's messy it's dirty it's like I want it off of me oh this is nasty right Ken's going, that's why I never had kids. That is crazy. <laughs> that is bad. I'm with you, Ken. I just have had to deal with it. I thought I was done with three kids, but no, now we're back at it again. So which Austin lovingly reminds me of, Dad, do you want to change the baby? No, I don't want to change the baby. <laughs> Proverbs 29, 18a says this. Where there is no vision, the people are unrestrained. But I like what the King James says. It says, where there is no vision, the people perish. Ooh. Perish. Negative people cause vision and hope to dissipate, don't they? I mean, you can have a pep rally, you can have something going on, and one person walks in the room and speaks up with a negative comment, and you just see the hope fizzle away. <laughs> well, we know that this apostle's name was Thomas. We also see that he's identified the New Testament by the name of Didymus, which Didymus literally means the twin, so most theologians believe he probably had a twin brother or, tw or twin sister, but we never get the pleasure of knowing their name in the scriptures. We don't know if it was a boy or a girl, but he's called a twin, so they tend to think that he probably had a twin. Um, we don't know if his twin was a believer, a follower of Christ, uh, a, a, a Jewish individual, we know nothing about them. But Thomas appears in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but the best characterization of his appearance is in the Gospel of John. John 11, where we'll be this morning. And Thomas's character is portrayed as negative. Again, he was doubting Thomas. He was the one who didn't believe what Jesus said, which I think he gets the bad rap because when you look at the apostles, how many times did they not believe? I mean, Peter didn't believe Jesus when he says, you're, you're going you're gonna to disown me three times. You know, we went through all this stuff where other apostles didn't believe Jesus and take him at his word. But Thomas is the one, because that issue in the upper room when Jesus appears to him, that he's labeled as doubting Thomas. He's, he's the negative one that is pointed out. But hopefully this morning I help you to see a little bit beyond the negative characterization that Thomas has had over the, the centuries, the thousands of years, and realize that he had some good traits in him also. Now it's true that Thomas could typically only look into the dark corners of life. You know, he would anticipate the worst and everything. It's like 
He wasn't one of those guys where you walk in and you see something, you're like, oh, we could make a plan and do this, 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 make it better. He's like, well, no, this is probably going to happen. It's not going to be good. You know, I'm going to get in the car today, but alternator's probably going to go out. You know, you could be like Christy when we're driving, driving down the road going, you know, save, save packages on board, drive safe. You know, we're in a truck, it's a nice little box, but consider the conditions. Don't drive like you're driving because it could be bad. You know, we have those moments. They're just real. And here we see Thomas. I still ask the question that we've asked every week. Here we have Doubting Thomas, Negative Thomas, the guy that just struggled with faith sometimes and taking Jesus at his word, taking the promises of Jesus and applying them to real life and always seeing the negative. I ask the question again, why would Jesus pick this guy to become an evangelist? Why would Jesus purposely pick out a negative doubting, lack of faith, individual to become a great evangelist and founder and of the church. Isn't that seem so odd? Well, I'll give you my take, and that's all that it is, is my take, and you can challenge it in your own mind. I think Jesus took doubting Thomas in the bee an apostle to change him from a doubter to being a great evangelist because Jesus is saying, hey, I know you struggle in faith too. That God is speaking to us in a personal messages, message saying, I'm going to use the example of this man's life to talk to you. Because I see what's in your heart and I know you doubt. Right now, Tara doubts that she can stay awake. That joke's probably getting old, isn't it? She's like, just go on, John. But God is speaking to us saying, I see what's in your heart and I see the synapses that are running through your right and left ears, and I know that a lot of times there's a lack of faith in there. There's a doubt. There's times where you just don't trust me to be God. Maybe you've trusted me in salvation, the salvation of your soul to save you from hell, but you don't trust me with what's going on today. Or maybe God's speaking to us in the fact of saying, you know, there's a lot of good things around you. If you just look around you at all the wonderful, beautiful, good things and people and blessings, but we only see the bad. I think God has given us Thomas as his example because, truth be told, we may relate more to Thomas than we do some of the other apostles. We doubt. We hear the word of God and then we don't act on it because we don't take it at its word. We struggle in faith. We often choose to struggle in sin more than seek God. We talk about the negative. Our speech is filled with negative about what's wrong with the world and what's wrong with life and how it's so unfair and all this stuff. We really relate with Thomas when it comes down to it, don't we? I mean, there's work, there's the kids, there's the house, there's retirement, there's, oh my gosh, there's the car, there's all this stuff. And it's overwhelming. And we become anxious, right? Stressed. Nobody in here deals with stress, do they? And yet we hear the words of Jesus that says, be anxious for what? Wow, well, you got that one down today, don't you? Have you done even so far this morning with that one? <laughs> you know? Jesus says, be anxious for nothing. He says, don't worry about tomorrow. Today's got enough issues of its own. And Jesus count it all joy when you encounter various trials. And we're going, yes, I heard it. I know it's in the Bible, but I'm really not applying that and living that out. Kids, that's what Thomas was. That's who Thomas was. And that's why we can relate with him. In John 11, when we get there here in just a minute, we're going to see that Jesus has been in Jerusalem and that he's at a point in his ministry where things are not going well. The... The, the fervor, the hatred fervor of the religious leaders has been stirred up, and they're seeking to kill Jesus. And so it's a dangerous place for him right now in his ministry. You know, sometimes we just picture, you know, Jesus uh, with his apostles out, you know, walking through the grain fields and doing all this stuff. It's just a, you know, a nice, warm, sunny day with a 
few little clouds out, but it's all blue sky. It's a nice, you know, 80, 90 degrees, and it's just wonderful. Everybody smells good, even though they've been walking for days, and, you know, it's all nice and good. And we realize that the last three years of Jesus' life were messy. Can you imagine being in ministry and knowing that everywhere you go, there's already a group of people talking about you, and they hate you already? They hate you to the point that wait, they want to get rid of you. You're not welcome. And neither are your disciples. And then to realize that while you're doing this mentorship training with your, your apostles and your disciples, that they just are not getting it over and over and over again. The ministry that Jesus did in those last three years was messy. And the training that Jesus did with those 12 men was messy. It wasn't that pretty stained glass picture we like to put it in, right? So Jesus is around Jerusalem, and Jerusalem doesn't want him. In fact, the opposite is true. They want to get rid of him. They want to kill him. John 9, 39 says this, And they were seeking again to seize Jesus. And he eluded their grasp, and he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing as he was staying there. So in John chapter 9, we see that Jesus does take an exit out of Jerusalem just because the tension is just too high. The, the attitude against him right now is just too hot, but it's not Jesus' time to die yet. Remember how we talk about God's will that you know, things won't happen until God ordains it. This wasn't Jesus' time to die, even though those religious leaders in Jerusalem were plotting to seize him and kill him. They were going to do it now and just take care of the problem. Get rid of this guy. Get rid of the, the apostles. Just squash this movement. So Jesus leaves Jerusalem because it's intense. And he goes to a safer place for a little while, but we do know that he will eventually what? He will return to Jerusalem, and the heated fervor of hating him is not left. It will only continue to increase and to grow, and Jesus walks into it because soon down the road here, it will be his time to die. But right now, it's not. So he leaves Jerusalem, and he's going to the place where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are. So let's pick up there. John chapter 11. Thanks, Kendall, by the way, for including this in your communion message. It worked out perfect. <laughs> John chapter 11, verses 1 to 16. It says, Now a certain man was sick. Well, that's kind of an odd way to start, right? Don't we want to start with once upon a time? Wouldn't that be nicer? Well, Jesus doesn't hide any punches from us. He says, There was a certain man who was sick, and it even lists that man's name. Who was it? Lazarus. Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her twin sister Martha. And it was Mary who did what? Anointed Jesus' feet, the Lord's feet, with ointment. Keep that in mind for a second. And wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters, Mary and Martha, sent word to Jesus, saying, Lord, behold, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, and we're speaking to the apostles now, this sickness is not to end in death. Huh. Well, stop there. Do you know the rest of the story? What happens to Lazarus? He dies. He dies. But Jesus says it's not to end in death. Well, that's kind of a weird thing to start there, right? Well, we also know the end of the story, which, keep in mind, the apostles do not know the end of the story. What is Jesus going to do with Lazarus? He's going to raise him, and he'll just have to die again. Well, at least he... Different than us, has practice at it, so good for him, you know? But keep in mind, the apostles don't know the end of this story when Jesus says this. So he says, the sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified in it. Well, now that, if you don't know the end of the story, that sentence in itself sounds pretty good, doesn't it? His sickness is not going to end in death, it's for the glory of God. Well, if I was an apostle and Jesus says we're going to go there, with that in mind, what would you be thinking? He's not going to die. Let's go. Come on. Okay. Verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. 
In essence, he was family. He had a place in his heart for them. Verse 7. Then after he said this to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. And you skipped verse 6. Did, you did I read? skip verse 6? Okay. <coughs> so when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in a place where he was. Thank you. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let's go to Judea again. Now the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in a day? If anyone walks in a day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. That's a weird statement. But basically, Jesus is saying, If you're with me, you're in the light, and it's okay. I am, <clears throat> excuse me, still the Son of God, fully God, fully man. But if your eyes are blinded, then you are not of my flock. That's in essence what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you all right now are lacking what? Faith. Verse 11. Then Jesus said, and after he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may waken him of sleep. Well, that doesn't sound bad. The dude's falling asleep, right? This is all the apostles know so far. It's going to be for the glory of God. His sickness is for the glory of God. Jesus doesn't deal with it right away. He stays two more days. And now he says, hey, Lazarus has fallen asleep. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Like, God, even we know, you know, you, you take a nap, you're going to wake up, right? Isn't this the imagery of the, of the apostles right now? We've got to put ourselves back in their place. Verse 13. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus <coughs> is what? Dead. And I'm glad. Oh, that's weird. I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there. Well, that sounds kind of cruel, doesn't it? Hey, my buddy's dead, but I'm glad I wasn't there for your sake. Well, what kind of a statement is that? At this point, you've got to realize they have just canceled out everything that Jesus just told them in the beginning, that this is for the glory of God. That has zipped and zipped from their mind. He says, I'm glad of it for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Boom, 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 here comes verse 16. Here's the big kicker. Therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. This is Thomas's shining moment right here, and we'll unpack this a little bit. So let's pull it apart. We're given a specific name of an individual here who was sick and was going to die. And who is this? Lazarus, right? We also see Mary and Martha. And we're also reminded in this verse of a couple things that we already know. Mary was the one who came in with the, the costly vial of perfume worth a, a year's wages, and she dumps it on Jesus' feet in spiritually anointing him for death. And she literally gets down with her hair, and she wipes the perfume off of his feet with her hair. And it's a tremendously humbling moment for her. Now put yourself in her place. She is so enamored, so overtaken by Jesus and realizing who he is as the Son of God that she's like, anything I have of value is an offering unto him. Put it in perspective. Mary has this vial of expensive <clears throat> perfume which is worth an entire year's wages. Now I don't know what you make in a year. It may not be what I make, but the reality is it's all the same because it's an entire year's wages. And she pours it on his feet. In essence, saying, you are my everything. You are God. You are fully man. You are my Lord, my Savior. I will give everything for you, which she does. And then to take it one step further, she humbly wipes off the excess with her own hair. It's an act of submission. It's an act of humility. It's an act of love. But what was the problem with the apostles in that act? Do you remember the story? The Bible says one word. They were indignant. In other words, they are disgusted. They're like, what a waste. Because we could have used that <laughs> to put in our little fund to sustain us. And if you remember the story, 
Jesus confronts them, right? He says, she has done something good, and I'm going to make it clear so that the point of this, that she's done something such a good thing to anoint me and to bless me, that I am going to make sure her name is remembered throughout history. So now there's this incident where all the apostles are rudely and roughly corrected by Jesus because they're like, you guys are not getting it. You are still in a training wheel section of your spiritual Christian life, right? Here's the disciples. They're on this. They're trying to ride this Christian bike for Jesus, but they're still in training wheels, right? They're not getting it. So Jesus is going back to where Lazarus and Mary and Martha are, and they have this in the back of their mind of what happened. How excited do you think they are to go back and be confronted with the reality of their own stupidity once again, right? You ever have those moments where you just had to eat not just a little crow, but a lot of crow, and that's saying, right? You have done a mistake, and now you have to face the ones you have wounded. Well, how excited are you about that? Not, right? This is where the apostles are going. So we have a whole mixed bag of emotion going on here. Any of you really relate with the apostles right now? Got to face the music. Got to go and face the people I've hurt. <sighs> got to face the people I've let down. And life's got to go on somehow. So they're not excited to go here. And then Jesus goes through this whole entourage of about Lazarus being sick, but it's for what? It's for the glory of God. Now, here's about the 14th life application in today's message, if you haven't got any of them yet. Jesus doesn't just say Lazarus is sick, but he says Lazarus is what? Going to die. And I'm going to hang out two days and let it happen. And then we're going to go back and we're going to use this for his glory. This is such an odd thing, isn't it? Here's the practical application. Anybody in here ever have bad things happen in your life? Not a single one of you. No one's raising your hand, right? Chris is going, well, maybe a little pinky thing, but that's all. You ever hear the C word? What, relating to your physical health? What is that? Cancer? You ever think about the fact that you go see the doctor for just your yearly checkup and you're all happy and skippy and then he says, you've got three months to live? Ever lose a child, a parent, an animal, a job? You ever really fail someone? We think those are all what kind of things? Bad things. And in the eyes of the world, they are. But we are not of the world, and I'm going to challenge that aspect this morning. I'm going to challenge that mentality that these are not bad things through the eyes of Christ because of what happens with Lazarus. Lazarus is dead. And Jesus says, this is going to be for the glory of God. Well, that doesn't fit in my world. He's dead. You loved him. You waited two days to go see him. And you say, this is for the glory of God? Here's my challenge. Here's where we take the life application of what these men and Thomas is going through, and we filter through our mind, and we readjust how we see things a little bit. Any of you ever in there look through a telescope? What do you got to do different than the person before you when you look at it after them? Richard knows this. He goes, he's one of these weird guys that goes out in the desert and watches stars, right? You have to refocus it, right? You got to get it in line because otherwise everything just looks fuzzy. Well, that's exciting. That's what I want to come out to the desert and see. I want to look through this, this tube and see fuzzy things in the sky, right? No, we want to put it in focus so that we can see the rings around the planet. We can see the star. We can see the moon. We have to put it into focus. And that's the life application we're doing here today. When bad things happen in your life, so-called bad things, because you're a Christian. You are not of the world, right? So we have to refocus how we see so-called bad things because they could be for the glory of God. Now, we know that all the apostles end up Doing what at the very end? 
dying except for John, who they just tried to throw him in a vat of boiling oil. Well, that's a nice way to keep you warm in the winter, right? And he survives. You can imagine his body scarred up, and then he dies in loneliness on the island of Patmos. But all the other apostles, except for Judas, did what at the end of their lives? They died the life of a martyr. Some were crucified upside down. Some were taken out by sword, but they all died for Christ. And we've heard some of their stories already in the other study of the apostles where even in their death, they're going, don't do this to me. Don't crucify me this way because I don't deserve to die the way that Christ did because he's that important in my life. We've heard the stories of some other disciples that when they died, the guard that was watching them came and stood with them and said, let me meet this Jesus and I will die with you because they were so enamored by how these men, what? Died. Do you ever think of the reality that it may not be just enough to live for Jesus, but you could have the ministry, the blessing, the gift, the honor of God to die well for Jesus. You think the world is watching you as a Christian? Richard used to freak me out all the time when he first became a Christian and started watching because he's like, John, I'm watching you. Now, he didn't say it that way, but he's like, I'm watching everything you do. I'm listening to every word you say. I'm watching you. <clears throat> the world is watching you when you say you're a faithful believer of God. They're watching how you act and react. They're watching what you do. And perhaps someday when you do leave this earth to go be with Jesus, they may be watching how you die. All that to say this is what I believe. Christians shouldn't die like people in the world. Even if you have cancer or long-suffering or a long, drawn-out illness, because we are still living for Jesus Christ, right? And the difference in the world is when the world dies, where are they going? To hell, a literal hell, as the Bible talks about, with no hope. And hell is literally the absence of God. I don't blame them for seeing these things as a bad thing, seeing death as a horrible thing. There's no future. There's nothing to look forward to. There's the unknown. And it's not like Star Trek, where they're excited to go in the great unknown. They don't want to go there because what if hell is real? Even though I said for all my life I didn't believe it. What if hell is real? They have nothing to look forward to. On the other hand, as a Christian, when we have salvation in Jesus Christ, what happens to us the moment we die? We are face to face with who? Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are ushered into heaven. We have nothing to fear in death. Nothing to fear and death, but only hope. But yet, have you seen Christians die like those of the world poorly? Screaming in pain and agony and saying, do anything to help keep me alive. I don't think that should be the witness for a Christian, do you? If we have all hope and we know we'll be face to face with Christ the moment we die and we'll be in his hands and in his arms and we'll be, be comforted and there'll be no more tears and no more pain, why do we still fear it like those of the world? Doesn't add up, does it? Lazarus' death was to be used for the glory of Christ because he was going to raise him from the dead to show that he was truly the Son of God. But Lazarus still had to die again. He just has more practice than us, like I said, right? We are all guaranteed, like some great person said, there's, what Mark Twain said, there's, Two guarantees in life, death and taxes, <laughs> right? We're guaranteed to handle both of those. So the question is, how do we handle them? Do we handle them like we believe in a Savior, like God is in control, like all good things from, come from the Father of Heaven, that when we die, we are ushered into the realms of Christ and no more pain and no more tears, and it's good, it's all that we've looked for all of our life? Or do we die wailing and screaming and crying it's not fair and how could God do this to me and I don't like this. Perhaps a ministry that God may give you and me is to die well for Christ just as we've lived well for Christ. That's a challenge, isn't it? 
But I want to plant that seed in your mind because obviously you're not there yet today. Hopefully it's not in the next 10 minutes. But I want to plant that seed in your, in your life that God, if God gives you the ministry of dying well as a Christian witness, then that's your ministry. You need to set your mind and your heart and make that decision now of if I am given that ministry of Christ to do this, how will I do it? Because I bet if you wait until that moment when it's really there, when you walk out of the doctor's office with that cancer word looming over your head, you probably won't go there, right? The other challenge is this. When bad things happen to you, let's take death out of it because that's a little unfun to talk about. When bad things happen to you, the Bible says we should do what? I've got the joy, 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 joy. Down in my heart. Where? Down in my heart. Where? Down in my heart. Okay, what's with the rest of you guys? <laughs> Summer camp. Nathan's going, I don't know the song. John, if I'm with a reader, we don't know the song. Don't, don't, don't call on me, right? The Bible says count it all joy when trials happen to you because God is using that for good. So here we put a spin on things. When so-called bad things happen to us, it's again about how we act and react because we are Christians. We have faith in God that we are in his hands that Satan himself can't take us away, and that God will oversee us even in troubled times. And so God says, consider it all joy because I've got your future guaranteed, but what do we do? Oh. Right? This is where we have to change our focus and realize if God's truly in control, that he's going to use that for a witness somehow, for his glory, wouldn't it be cool if when Christians went through so-called bad times, they were joyful and like, God's got this, I'm going to make it through it, I'm confident, I have no fear, I don't have to be anxious over it because God's got this. Wouldn't that freak out the people you live with and work with? How can you say that? Are you in la-la land or something? Have you lost it? Yeah, they'd freak out because we'd be such a good witness and be like, we're going to get through this because God is with us. And nothing can separate me from the love of God, not height nor depth. Nothing can separate me from the love of God and his spirit dwelling within me. So even though this may look bad to you, God's doing something in here and he's teaching me something and he's going to use this for his glory. Big challenge? Yeah, it changes the way we see things, doesn't it? That's what God is doing with Lazarus and the apostles and Thomas. That's one of the ironies of being Christian, is God turns things inside out. Real close example of that little thing over there in the corner, that's a symbol of death. Isn't it? I've got one around my collar, around my neck. Anybody else? That's a symbol of death. But what does Jesus turn that into? Symbol of life. Because it is an empty cross. Because my Lord and Savior, the Son of God, is risen from that cross and is no longer there, and death could not contain him. Therefore, that symbol of death is suddenly turned around, refocused. It's now a symbol of life. And that's what we cherish. This is the same attitude when bad, so-called bad things happen to us. They're not bad. God is using that for his glory and giving you and I the blessing of having a ministry of being joyful always and living in faith in God. Nope, there you go, church is done. Have a good day. That's the message here that God is doing with Lazarus. So the question is, do you glorify God in the bad times and the good times, or just the good times? There's another message here, too, that's a little bit more subtle that people struggle with in the church. Two issues. One, well, I go to church to leave feeling good. Well, if you've been here for a while, that's a lie, isn't it? Ellen's going, yeah, just take out the hammer and beat me on the head again. Thank you very much for Sunday. Oh, I feel motivated today, right? Some people believe you just go to church to feel good. Others believe that if you just don't feel good or you've been bad or you've made a mistake, you shouldn't go to church. Those are both lies from the pit of hell. Let's look at this. The Bible tells us in Matthew 18, 24, where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. In other words, where there's two Christians meeting together in the name of Jesus, what's going on? We got church going on, right? On church. 
and Jesus corrects them in church. <laughs> Do you think these guys felt really good? When they got to face Mary and all them that they've got scolded for already, they know Jesus is being hunted to die, and now Jesus says Lazarus dead, but it's for his good, and they're going here, and Jesus says, we're going, guys. you got to live in faith. you got to walk in the daylight of day. There's 12 hours a day. Walk in the light. They're in church, and Jesus is correcting them. Do you think they left with unicorns and butterflies floating around their head that day? Mm -mm. I think they left going, oh, we got it wrong again. How are we going to do this? <laughs> Hopefully we get it better next time. The other thing is this. When they're there, and they fail, and they have lack of faith, and Jesus has to correct them in church, does Jesus say, you guys are such losers. You're still on spiritual training reels. you got lack of faith. I am just walking away from you. Is that what happens in the story? Or do they all go to where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are? What happens? They all go. Jesus doesn't quit on them because they had lack of faith. Jesus doesn't leave them because they sin as apostles. <laughs> you think your sin is bad. Imagine being an apostle and sinning again. Jesus walks with them. He corrects the sin. He makes it clear. He says, now we got to do something on it. But now we got to go forward. And he walks to where Mary and Martha and Lazarus are with them. If you ever get the thought in your mind that you can't go to church because you've sinned, you've messed up, you've screwed up, you've done something wrong, you thought the pastor was ugly, whatever it may be, get that out of your head. Jesus walks with sinners. He may correct you and I. He may straighten us out and deal with the issue because the truth will set you free. But then he says, after he has dealt with the issue and set us free, he says, now you and I will walk together. He doesn't abandon us. He doesn't leave us alone. He doesn't say, go, don't go to church. He says, gather with believers and be edified and build one another up. Now you are free because you face the truth. Now let's go forward. Isn't that cool? <laughs> All this time you thought we were talking about Thomas. We're really just talking about each one of us in the room, right? So what, a, what an irony in God's house. But here's where we need to get to. John 11, verse 14 to 16. So Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad for it for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Therefore, Thomas, wherever you see a therefore in the Bible, what do you do? You'll find out what it's there for. Therefore, Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. Does this sound like a man that's doubting? When Thomas hears this, and he says, This is going to be for the glory of God. And oh, by the way, Lazarus doesn't, isn't just sick. He's what? He's dead, but Jesus is going to use it for the glory of God. Thomas is the only one out of all the apostles right here and now that speaks up in a moment of faith. He catches it. He gets that, that football of faith. He's got it in. He's going in for the touchdown. He's like, guys, guys, if this is what it takes to glorify God, then all of us, let's go. Come on, get our stuff. Let's pack our bags. Let's get going now so that we too can die for the glory of God. What a weirdo. But isn't that inspiring? Thomas is the only disciple in this story that speaks out and says, if this is what it takes to glorify God, and we're followers of God, then everyone in the room, let's go and let's go now. We're losing time. This is for the glory of God. Do you see the faith of Thomas in this moment? It beats the faith of all the other 11 apostles' hands down. They're still dealing in their correction, their failure, their wallowing. They're going to have to face Mary and how they put her down. They're still dealing this mental thinking and this bad thing that Jesus is going to a dangerous place. Well, I'll tell you, he was the Son of God. He should know. I mean, lack of faith right there. Thomas is the only one who steps up and says, hey, if this is what it takes to serve God, then let's do this. Come on, let's quit talking about things. Let's put the past in the past. Let's move forward. Let's go. Let's glorify God. How's that hit you? No longer doubting Thomas, right? Now, we do know even after this, Thomas will have his spiritual ups and downs. Thomas will have some struggles. But here's the miracle, the beauty of why God puts Thomas in the Bible. 
Here's where, why God makes Thomas an apostle, a bearer of the gospel of Christ, a foundation of the church, because we relate with Thomas. And although Thomas had his doubts, he also had his moments of what? Sheer mountaintop experience, dynamite explosive power of faith that if this is what it takes to glorify God, then let's quit making excuses and let's go, kids. Have you had those moments in your life? Guess what? You'll have them again, won't you? So the point is, don't quit now because you're going to have those moments of faith. If you're lacking in faith, which often we do, we speak negative, we look down, we don't see the big picture, then stay in. As the Apostle Paul said, run the race, run the good race until what? Until you attain the prize, the upward call of Jesus Christ. Don't stop early. Don't quit. Don't go sit on the sidelines. Stay in the race because God's got more for you. But if you stop, you can't get there. Thomas had mountaintop experiences. Thomas had bottom-of-the-barrel experiences. So did all the other apostles. But in the end, do you know what God made Thomas to be? A great man of faith and evangelist. He went from faith to doubt when Jesus appeared in the upper room where Jesus says, put your finger through the holes if you don't believe. Thomas, come on. But then after that, Pentecost happened. The Holy Spirit came upon all these men, and they all became great evangelists, willing to live and die and suffer for the sake of Christ, for the upward call of God. You don't get this practical application. Get at least this one today. In your spiritual life, don't quit. Don't stop. Keep going. The miracle is still yet to happen. You're just in training ground now. We see Thomas, he's still in the midst of his two-year mentoring membership. He's not done yet. He's still in the gym, right? Don't quit now. Don't lose faith. Even though you've lacked faith, there's a difference. Press on, Christian. And God can do in you the miracle like he did in Thomas. Spiritual high, bottom of the barrel low, but then you're radically transformed and changed. And you become a great man or woman for God's glory. Does it make sense? Does it fit for our lives today? I think it does. There's so many life applications here. Let us not lose the blessing of what God has given us in the story of Thomas, but let us glean from his mistakes and his successes and realize we need to press on and apply the Word of God and live in faith for his glory, no matter what. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we thank you for, Lord, just like the apostles, bringing us in church and sometimes correcting us, but always walking with us and never leaving us nor forsaking us. We thank you, Lord, that we are a work in progress in the mighty, strong, calloused hands of your hands, that as you mold us and shape us, you have a plan, a future, a hope for us, that, Lord, we just need to keep going to get to the finish line. I pray that you would give your servants here this day, encouragement and hope and patience and long-suffering that we would not give up and we would not give in, but we would finish the race well no matter where we've been, Lord, that we would get back in the race now and give you glory. We praise you and thank you, Lord, for your example in the Bible. In Jesus' name.